Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's word. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to, their, to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity. Uh, my name is Jonathan and get to serve as a pastor of this church. And um, I'm glad that you are here. We know that church is sometimes foreign. It can feel as if you don't belong, especially if you've been outside of church. Uh, been, maybe you've been outside of Christianity. Coming into a church can feel as if this is not a space for me, and we, we like to say regularly that it is. It is because it's a place where people are supposed to come and ask hard questions and learn what it means to practice Christianity, and as we're calling this series, learn how to practice the Christian version of freedom. So if you're new to Trinity, new to church, welcome. We want to be able to make things understandable and explainable. There are people who have not been in church for a long time, maybe never, ever. And so sometimes Christians are very guilty of using insider language and not explaining things to people in a way that makes sense and gets to the storylines of their heart. And so we want to work hard at that and let us know where I confuse you and where we confuse you. But we're glad that you're here. Uh, we're in a beautiful section of Scripture. <clears throat> we're in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, let me just mention this, um, just looking around the room, if, if you're listening for the first time online or later, you know, this is a, a beautiful space, but today it is decorated quite well. Last night, I got the privilege of having a father-daughter dance as well. My daughter turned 11 yesterday, and um, we had about eight or nine little girls at the house, and we threw it down, all right? We did it right. Only thing we we're missing was that right there. This is everything was just about right. But coming in here this morning and looking around, we know that um, community, friendship, family, parties, and trying to make it through after a long night with daughters and dancing is uh, sometimes what we're walking into. But glad that you're here. 
we, we're, I'm excited to go into this, and I want to kind of set the stage in this incredible text by just thinking about the idea of a fight, right, of a throwdown, good old-fashioned brawl. You may have had one on the way here this morning. Oftentimes you do. You may have had one with your kids this morning, last night. Maybe you're in the middle of a tense week, but maybe you've got something that's chronic going on in your life and in relationships. There's tension. Tension is human. Tension and fighting and disparity and disunity have been a part of the human story since the second generation. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, you know that murder was introduced into the Christian narrative with Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, Cain taking the life of his younger brother. Fighting has been a part of who we are as human beings almost literally since day one. And of course, we live in a moment of diversity of opinions and politics and culture wars that have provided the grounds for more division and disunity and a lack of peace between people and parties, probably unlike any other moment in human history. And there is fighting outside of the church. There are things that we are privy to in the news. We see it, and it grieves us. There's fighting that goes on inside of the church. I don't know if you know that. Fighting happens inside of the church. If you've been a part of the church for a while, you're probably wearied by internal fighting. Can I say this? This is not in my notes for today. The last three years of planting this church have been remarkably peaceful and beautiful. We're so thankful for that. We are not a perfect church. We have been working hard to to set it up every week and to tear it down and to create systems and structures for people to be nurtured. Our vision is to be a church where people learn to follow Jesus, making and maturing disciples who can live for the good of other people. The last three years for Jeff and I have been wonderful as we have tried to guide this church. Let me just say thank you. That's not always the case. It's certainly not the case in this letter. And that's what Paul is actually addressing here. At the end of chapter 1, after speaking to the fact that there were, there were rival parties who were trying to undermine Paul's influence in Rome, he's writing to them. These people are preaching out of selfish ambition, trying to take Paul down. Remember that this letter is written from prison. This is a prison epistle. He's writing, he's chained to, to two centurion guards, praetorian guards. He is uh, in a very unique situation. He's writing from prison And of course, he's writing to let them know how he's doing. But as he's in prison, as he's in chains, there are people who are undermining his ministry. They're trying to take over what Paul had established. They're trying to become great preachers and teachers and to have a name out of selfish ambition. And what Paul tells the Philippians is, quote, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says that. He says that to them. Then he tells them to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Why does he say that? He says that because the Philippian church was a Roman province within modern-day Greece. And then you have these young Christians who are just figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. And there's all this outside cultural pressure pressing on them, criticizing them, pushing them to the margins. And the natural reflex is to turn inward when things get difficult. No? I mean, I don't know if you turn outward and get more loving when things get difficult, but when there's pressure on you, backbiting and selfishness and self-centeredness, these things get pulled to the center of my life and my family and our society. We've seen it. So that's what he's addressing here is this pressurized Christian community that has this gut reflex that when things are going to get hard and they are hard, they begin to have disunity. 
and breakdown inside the church, outside the church. The age-old problem of fighting. And what he's going to show us are some resources and the character that's needed to be able to live differently. All right? So three things from Philippians 2. We're going to look at the barrier of me. Number two, we're going to look at the mind of Christ. And number three, the good of others. All right, so the barrier of me, the mind of Christ, and the good of others. So look at verse 1 under the barrier of self, the barrier of me. Verse 1. There Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. Okay. I would love for you to have a Bible open or your Bible app open, a phone. Uh, you're welcome to have that in front of you. This is a lot of dense theology. There's a lot packed into a few verses. I would love to have your eyes on it consistently. We may not have the screen there for you. Throughout, So please pull it out. I'm going to be taking you through this, these few verses. But I want you to look at verse 1 and then verse 3, a little bit of contrast here. I want you to notice how Paul begins. In verse 1, he's going to provide the motivation for what he's about to teach us. I want to say it would have been very easy to just jump to verse 3. And for, for many of you, you would go, it seems very Christian to jump to verse 3. Verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Paul could have started there. It would have felt wise. It would have felt truthful. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Okay, sounds great. Sounds Christian. Is this what people who are followers of Jesus do? Yes, but why? See, this is why the first two verses matter so much. If we don't wrestle with the why, then our motivations get skewed. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why shouldn't I focus on my own needs? I'm pretty sure nobody else will, and isn't this simply human nature? Here's the point. Paul says, what I'm about to teach you flows out of your connection to Jesus Christ. It's not to get a connection with Jesus Christ. He goes, if you have any partnership in the Spirit of God, if you have any like-mindedness in this following of Jesus thing, if the Spirit of God is uniting you in any way, if there's any love, if there's any affection for God and for one another, then have no selfish ambition amongst you. Live differently. Consider the interests of others. Is it okay and would it be Christian to go to verse 3 and say, hey, love other people? Of course. But then I'm not exactly sure why. And I love the why. And I love that Christianity takes you to the why. He goes, remember the gospel. Remember that you're connected to this triune God. Remember that he's made a, a family out of a bunch of strangers. Remember the way in which he's forgiven you. If you've got any of that going on in your heart, if you have affections for this God, then go and live differently and love well. That's what he's saying. Because of what Jesus has done in the Philippians' hearts, because of their new status, quote, in Christ, a very important term for Paul, being connected to Jesus, being in Christ, he tells them to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And what he's saying is, stop placing yourself at the center of everything. It's not all about you. 
That's what he's saying. Stop putting yourself at the center of everything. Now, there's some strange things in the room, but there's always an elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room, no matter which room you are walking in, where you go or what you do is simply this. That selfishness is what I bring to the table no matter where I'm going. I'm thinking a lot about myself no matter where I go. This is what it means to be me so often. Like I, I think about me. I, I care for me. I tend to my needs. I'm, I'm thinking about my thoughts. I'm thinking about myself. I'm not as often focused on you. I'm not focused on the people around me. But I've got a narrative in my head, and I am the hero of that story. And all of you are just players in my storyline. Right, we've got a big plot, and I guess it's my life, and you've got a big plot, and it's called your life. And you're looking at all the different things and all the different storylines and dreams. This is what it means to be a human being so often in our moment. Man, and we lift that up to the top. This is what it means to be human. Live life. Live your best life now. Go and get it. You're the hero and heroine of your own story. All the other things are just parts and players. Go ahead and get what's coming to you. This is what's called self-centeredness. And I don't mean that in any sort of negative way per se yet. I'm just saying that that is the ideology of self at the center. We'll just call that self-centeredness. I am centered on myself. I orbit around me. I can't help it. You know, when I go into the store, I was thinking about this illustration. I go get coffee down the street. Wonderful local coffee shop called Mostra. Anybody been to Mostra? Don't go to Starbucks anymore. Go to Mostra, all right? Most is wonderful. I go in there thinking about what I want to drink. You know that I don't go in there thinking about the baristas? I don't know if that's strange. Do you go into your local coffee shop thinking about how's the barista doing? Should you go in there thinking about the employees? I don't know. This is for us to debate and think about. But I'm going in there thinking about what I want. I'm also thinking about how much time and how many people are in line. Pastors, they're impatient too. I don't know if you knew that. So we see the line. We go, I don't know if I'm going to stay today. Starbucks, maybe. All right, no, it's not worth it. I'm standing in the line. How much time are you going to take from me? How many of you have been to Costco getting gas lately? It's a, it is an anxiety-producing moment where you look at the line and you think to yourself, how much of my time and my money is this going to take? See, everything's about me. Everything's about uh, the, the orbit of Jonathan's world. This is self-centeredness. Right? You may say, well, that's quite normal. The reality is it has become quite normal. When I meet with couples for marriage counseling, it's not uncommon for the majority of marital issues to be fueled by self-centered practices. I would love for premarital and postmarital the, the, the counseling session to go like this. You are not at the center of the world, but you're living like you are, and it is causing tremendous tension. It's causing tremendous problems. Why is this the case, and is placing myself at the center really actually a big deal? See, the Bible says that selfishness is the dominant relational result and the fallout of sin within the human heart and within human society. Every society, it doesn't matter what kind, traditional or modern, has to deal with the reality of selfish ambition. So does every family, so does every church. 
Why? Because we are a collection of humans, yes, but we are a collection of sinners. This is what sin is about. It places me at the center of the storyline. Now, remember that the Philippian church, as I've mentioned before, is planted within a pagan secular city and Roman province. The Christians were not part of the majority culture. They had no real influence on policies or systems or structures. They were a minority movement within this larger thing called the Roman Empire. And much like today, these Christians lived within a social moment in a society that was constructed to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. Today, we are living in a social moment that revolves around the priority of self even going so far as to codify it within law and practice. Here's how Trevin Wax puts it. This moment is about expressive individualism. He says this, According to this way of thinking, the goal of life is to discover and express your unique sense of self, no matter what others may say or do to challenge your freedom of personality. The narrative arc of your life is finding your personal route to happiness by following your heart, expressing your true self, and then fighting whoever would oppose you, your society, your family, your past, or your church. That's a storyline that is driven by the simple idea of be true to yourself. And there's wonderful things that have come from that. Individualism isn't all bad, but the larger society results, societal results have been catastrophic. Catastrophic in the same way that if you saw a husband and a wife to be on their wedding day saying vows to one another that essentially revolved around the idea that I will be true to myself, you go, man, this thing's not going to work. This thing is not going to work. Did you hear what they just said? They did not take a vow to love and to serve each other till death do us part. They took a vow to be true to themselves. You would go, this isn't going to work. This is going to break down. Marriage works when you love and you serve, when you do not orbit around yourself. It took me about a day to figure out in my marriage, it doesn't orbit around me. And I've wrestled with that for the last 16 or 17 years because that's what's going on in my heart. I like to be at the center. But what Jesus is doing in my life is he's changing that dynamic. He's working on me. Trevin Wax, he goes on to say, research from Barna that shows the largest percentage of church-going Christians, 66%, who say enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. That percentage is lower than the number for all Americans, 84%, but it is still remarkably high, especially among churches that on paper, perhaps, would claim that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Christians are saying that the point of life is pleasure. I'm at the center. I am the hero. But on paper, we believe that it's supposed to be about something else. What's happened? Like, where do we get lost? Where do we get off course? Where do we set a different charter? Like, what happened? And the reality is, man, this is the world that we swim in. It's the air that we're breathing. And sometimes we can't see it. We can't sense it. We just believe it. We just swim in it. This is modern expressive individualism. 
Live your best life now. Everything orbits around you. If anything gets in the way, push it aside. And the reality is it leads to depression. It leads to anxiety. It leads to loneliness. All the statistics are there. Why is that the case? It's because when I enter into society and relationships thinking that these things are supposed to facilitate me and what I want, everything becomes transactional. Everything becomes about me. And when it no longer serves me, the dynamic needs to shift. See, and that's the breakdown. This leads to fighting. This leads to disunity. And what Paul wants to say is, I'm going to show you a better way. So the barrier of me, admitting that it's there, and Jesus wants to shift it. Number two, let's go to the mind of Christ. Look at verse 5 with me. The barrier of self, the mind of Christ. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is a very famous portion of Scripture. Oftentimes it's referred to as the Christ hymn. We're not exactly sure the origin of this portion of Scripture, but most likely if you have a Bible, it's formatted as if it were a poem. Right? It doesn't look like prose, it looks like poetry, and we're not sure if Paul wrote it or if it was more of an ancient doctrine and a poem and a hymn that had been handed down, but nevertheless it's been included in our Scripture. And it's a beautiful articulation of this Christian concept of what's called the Incarnation. All right. The incarnation is a fancy word for talking about Jesus in heaven, Son of God, becoming a human being. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. It's in essence about Christmas. That God actually came to our planet, that he was God. He had all the rights and privileges of God, but he lowered himself and he became a human being. What's unique about that is in this city and society where there's this inward turn towards self. He goes, let me talk to you about doctrine. I need to root this in the scripture. I need to root this in a big, beautiful Christian idea. He doesn't go, I'm going to give you some self-help to fix it. I'm going to give you some anger management techniques, and all of those things are good. I am not opposed to those things in any way, nor is Christianity. Wisdom is in those things, but that's not where Paul goes as the foundational understanding of how to change disunity. He goes to doctrine. He goes to Christmas and this idea of the incarnation. Let's go back to verses 3 and 4 for a moment. Look there with me. In verses 3 and 4, remember that Paul said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Most people, Christian or non-Christian, would hear this portion of Scripture read, and they would say something like, Sounds great, but that's impossible. It sounds wildly naive to think that humans are capable of tabling self-interest and valuing other people above themselves. How would that even be a possibility? And Paul gives us the first clue to this in verse 5. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He tells the church that the way in which you think matters. See, doctrine matters. Good doctrine matters. So many people have rejected Christianity, but it's not a true version of Christianity. 
It's a bunk version of Christianity. It's not the real version of Jesus. This is, this is what we want to get you to week after week is go, let's go to the scripture. Let's see what the Bible says about the person of Jesus, our triune God. Then if you want to reject it, reject it. But there are so many versions of Christianity. This week, my wife met somebody who's known her for a long time. And they looked at her after they heard that her husband was a pastor. And then they go, so that means you are a pastor's wife. And she goes, yes, that's what that means, right? My husband is a pastor. You are a pastor's wife. She goes, yep. And then you know what the next response was? But you're so normal. You're so, how could, ah, this doesn't, her world blew up. Y'all are normal. You like have normal kids with normal problems, right? You're like a mom and dad who are trying to figure it out. You're Christians? Yes. Right? We're, a, we're Jesus people. That means I can admit the fact that when I step into the room, I often think about myself. I don't have to hide that because Jesus doesn't love me because I'm not self-centered. You see, he loves me because of grace. Get to the center of Christianity. Get to the heartbeat of the gospel. Get to doctrine. And this is what Paul is saying. He goes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. But guess what? I don't know Jesus' mindset. I don't know anything about Jesus. Like, I know what I've been told, but I don't know him. How can I adopt his mental maps? How can I have his attitude? How can I have his mindset if I reject the story that's been given to me? If I'm not a person who says, I do want to follow. I do want to know your word. I want to know your mind. I want to know the mind of Christ. Guess what? My wife and I have been married 17 years. I want to know, almost, I want to know her mind, right? Because we're in relationship and because there's love. I want to know her heart. I want to adopt familial values. I want to live in line with her. This is what Paul is saying. He goes, you want to fix the disunity in your family and in society? Adopt first. First clue. It's about the mind of Christ. So where does that even begin? Well, it begins for Paul in this deep dive into the incredible condescension of Jesus. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says that Jesus was fully God, man. He is the one who spoke solar systems and black holes into existence with vocalized puffs of air. He's not semi-God. He's not demi-God. He's fully God. This is who this person is, fully God, equality with God, completely shared, not created by him and some, some uh, servant sent to planet Earth, God himself with human flesh. This is what this text is telling us. This is unfathomable. You can't really think of it. We often just kind of bypass it. Do you know the mind of Christ? Do you know the mind of the Father that would do this for you? Fully God, not demigod, not semi-God, all of it. He did not consider equality with a thing to be grasped. But we are graspers. Grasping has been part of the human storyline since the beginning. Grasping for power, grasping for ambition, grasping for love, grasping for belonging. Jesus was not like that. He did not have to do that. He had all of that himself, but he took it. He's already got it. He doesn't need to take it from anybody. He lays it down. 
he did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own platform and his own advantage. He wanted to use all of this godness for other people. Forgiving and not forgetting. And here, friends, you start to get a clue as to what God is really like. Here is God himself and his instinctual reflex amidst all of that capability, all of that majesty, all of that power and glory is to make himself nothing by adding deity, by adding humanity to his deity. He didn't set aside anything. He added to it and he becomes a servant. Here's how Tom Wright put it. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this. This is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. Do you know the mind of Christ? Do you really know it? In John chapter 13, make a note of this. In John chapter 13, it's the last night, this final supper, 13 men about to have a goodbye meal. And Jesus has brought his men into the upper room. You're probably very familiar with the story. It's on the eve of his crucifixion. He's having the final meal with his brothers. Everything has been prepared. Everybody's gone to the grocery. Everything's been dropped off. This place has been set up. You walk into this beautiful meal. But there's one thing they've forgotten. And the one thing is that they needed to hire somebody to wash their feet. We see beautiful pictures, ancient pictures of the final supper, but what you probably don't see is the anger on those men's faces in the first half of that night. Because guess what? There's nobody to wash feet, which meant that the responsibility was going to be laid upon the shoulders of the lowest ranked man in the room. Now, who's going to raise their hand and go, that's me, number 13, I'm number 13, Jesus likes me the least, or I think he likes me the least, or y'all like me the least, or you give me the worst responsibilities over the last three years with Jesus, all right, I'm the foot washer. Nobody did that that night. Everybody went like this, not me, not me. I'm not washing your feet. I've seen your feet, Peter. Those are nasty feet. I'm not touching those feet. We should have hired, who was responsible to bring the foot washer? Nobody steps up and goes, I'm the lowest in the room. I'll wash the feet. Until Jesus stands up. And John tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God, see, such stability. His identity was fixed knowing who he was. What could he do knowing who he was, that he was from God and going back to God? He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. No one was willing to assume the position of a servant in that room except Jesus. This was a despised position, washing feet. But Jesus, the master, humbled himself. This was and still is the mind of Christ. Right? This is the heart of God for you. He didn't regard power, position, all of these things that he had, all of his clout as something that could make him look good. He laid it aside to make you look good. This is what our God is actually like. And he doesn't just cleanse your feet. He wants to wash all of you. He wants to wash your mind. He wants to wash your heart. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to make you righteous through the actions and the reality of the cross and the resurrection. This is who Jesus is. Do you know that Jesus? 
what a king. Nobody like our Jesus. To adopt the mind of Christ is to develop a cross-shaped identity. Two things here. Two things. A cross-shaped identity means that I exhibit self-affirmation as well as self-denial. That's a cross-shaped identity. Self-affirmation. It means that I don't have to be humiliated to be a Christian. I don't have to beat myself up to be a follower of Christ. Right? Self-denial simply means that I know who I am, who Scripture says that I am. I'm a sinner. But he's a Savior. And he has come to heal and redeem and to love me and to bring me in. Self-affirmation. I know what he's done for me. I am so loved, but I know what it required for me to be part of his family, his death. When those two things collide, immense humility without insecurity, you start to have the ability to move into relationships that are hard, all of the fighting, all of the disunity, with the mind of Christ, and I guarantee you it will change something. If nothing else, it will change you. You're not responsible for the other people's hearts. You're not responsible for somebody to reconcile on the spot when you're ready. You're responsible for what you think and how you move toward that person with the mind and the heart of Christ, what he's done for you. No insecurity, right? Immense humility because I'm so loved, but I'm so lost. This is the collision of a cross-shaped identity. No more excluding, no more hating, no more fighting. The mind of Jesus. Look at point three. We'll take you there where we conclude. The good of others. When you have a cross-shaped identity, you don't have to orbit around your own needs anymore. It's such a relief. It's a tremendous joy. You don't have to create a false self. We are very good at creating false selves. You can finally be free to orbit your life around the one thing that can sustain the weight of your soul, namely the God who made your soul. And Jesus tells us what this looks like. It looks like a genuine love of God and a deep love of neighbor. That's what it means to orbit around God. I'm going to love him with everything I've got. I'm going to love the people who he laid his life down for with everything that I've got. Matthew 22, 37. But go back to verse 3 for just a moment. This is crucial and can change everything. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. We're back there again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Or as the old King James would put it, let each esteem others better than themselves. Here's what this means. When you bump up against people's differences, things that you do not like, their deficiencies, differing opinions, perspectives, even their weaknesses, on what basis will you deem them as worthy? On what basis will you deem them as significant? Will you love them because they're lovable? Will you honor them because they're honorable? Will you count them and treat them as worthy because they actually are Or will you consider them? Will you esteem them as worthy even if they're not? See, the question for Christianity isn't, is the person actually worthy? Or will you treat them as if they were? Will you position them in your life and heart in a way that only gives love and respect and honor based upon whether they're deserving of it? Or... Will you, apart from anything they've done or not done, consider other people more significant 
in yourself. And here's where this last portion of this incredible Christ hymn comes into play. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, And Jesus, again, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, in order to save humans... Jesus became human. He humbled himself, humbled by no one else. So important. Nobody humbled Jesus. Nobody took anything from Jesus. Jesus gave it away. Jesus humbles himself. He willingly takes the form of a servant. He descends. He lays his power aside in order to help you get ahead. Their sins are covered because of the cross, because of the resurrection, and I'm welcomed into the presence of God himself, because of grace and because of nothing that I've done. But am I actually righteous or am I just considered righteous in the gospel? Am I actually holy or because of the life of Christ given to me and the fact that I'm considered in him, am I now counted as righteous? Which is the difference? Does it even make a difference? I want to say it makes a tremendous difference. Nobody in this room is perfect. Nobody in this room who follows Jesus is righteous in the perfect sense that Jesus actually was. But because you're with him, you are counted and treated as if you were the son. His righteousness is now yours. This is the gospel. And so Paul says because of that, because of the way in which you are loved in Christ, as you adopt the mindset of Jesus... He goes, when you bump up against people's differences and you are ready to throw down, he goes, treat them as if they were worthy. Treat them as if they are more significant than you, even if in your eyes they're less gifted or more annoying. He goes, love them as if they were righteous. Treat them as if and count them as beautiful. This changes everything. Because now you don't have to come into a relationship and kind of count and tally all of the things that are wrong. It's so easy to do that, right? To point to other people's deficiencies and say, that's why I can't love you. Christianity says that's not how you're loved. Can you adopt the heart of Christ? Can you move into those relationships? Can you see the way in which you've been loved? Because until you've been loved like that, it's going to be hard to give it away. And so we move into and say, Jesus, show me who I really am. Show, show me how I'm really loved so I can love other people the way in which you love. Is that the Jesus you know? Do you know his mind for you? Do you know his heart for you? It's never changing. Lord Jesus, would you just come, pull us in. Pull us into your heart, the mind of Christ. So much condescension and humility, but then so much lifting up. The word that's used is actually Jesus is super exalted. Jesus, you are on the throne reigning and ruling. And what you're doing there right now is you are counting and considering us as righteous. But I'm a sinner. How could it be? It's because I'm in you. I'm connected in relationship to the one true son who willingly gave up all of his rights to love me. Lord Jesus, right now, as we think about our lives, 
our marriages, our children, our work environments. There are names and faces that are hard to love. We are hard to love. And I thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, but you treat us the way in which Jesus deserves to be treated. When I think about an argument, when I think about disunity, what would it look like for Christians to move out into the world with your mind? Give us that. Lord, reconcile us to yourself. Pull us back in. Certainly there are people in this room who have misunderstood the point and the purpose of Christianity. Realign us and bring joy to that process. Give us your heart again. Lord, just pray for a spirit of softness, a spirit of wanting to fix things that are broken, namely relationships, because that's what you have done for us. We pray that we would see reconciliation happen as we follow you, as we follow you into the harder places and the harder people. Would you get the honor? And we would feel that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.